Hello, welcome to Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson. For those of you who don't know, I was knighted in 2013 for my services to culture and education, which was amazing and probably one of the best days in the whole of my life. But I realised that I know very little about the actual concept of knighthood. I mean, I know they wore armour and stuff, but beyond that, not very much. Like, where did the idea of knights come from? How's it changed over time? For instance, what would a medieval Sir Tony Robinson have looked like? What would his knightly duties have been? I've invited two guests here today who can help me paint that picture. But before I do, a quick chat with Melissa, my producer, as usual. Hello, mate. Hi, Tony. Okay, so you are a knight. Mm -hmm. Do you have a coat of arms? I could have done, but it would have cost between two and three thousand quid. (gasps) to have one made and certified. No, apparently. uh, Of course, I know what you're going to say, it would have had a turnip on it. Well, it might well have done. But there is a long history of real knights in the Middle Ages having funny things on their coat of arms. Like there's one knight, I can't remember his name now, but he had a pair of pants. No. Yes, it's true. He did. Not only was it a pair of pants, it was a pair of pants that had been weed in. Now, the reason for that is that his name sounded a bit like pissing your pants. So he thought it'd be really funny to have that on his coat of arms. Personally, I wouldn't have chosen to do that. Would Baldrick have chosen it? Oh, no, that would have been far too posh for Baldrick. This week, I'm looking at knights, and I've got with me Matt. Lewis, who also does his own podcast called Gone Medieval, right? That's right, yes. You must have done nights. We've done several individual nights, yes. Oh, oh no, that's all right. That's not yeah, quite the same. Not as quite ours, covered the same ground. Yeah. And Toby Catwell, who I've known for years and years. Am I right in saying, Toby, that our first one was on the Peasants' Revolt, our first TV? I don't really remember the order of things anymore. I remember the Peasants' Revolt because that was a a great adventure riding from Canterbury all the way to the Savoy Palace in London. But I do also remember the worst jobs in history and your history of Britain. And who knows what the order was anymore. Did you make lances for us on worst jobs in history? Yes, we looked at the whole process of lance making, which on the face of it isn't the worst job you can imagine. But it is kind of thankless because all that beautiful woodwork just gets destroyed in a couple of days of nightly fun. So it's a futile process, really. And I think that was the basis on which we proceeded. So, okay, uh, where did the actual concept came from? Because when I think of as a knight, you're, you're well into the Middle Ages and they've got shiny armor and everything. But the notion must have come from somewhere. The first place you have to start is a kind of fundamental truth that almost all all traditional human societies have a warrior elite, a group of people who are trained to fight at a really high level and they demand substantial resources and support from their society to offer defense and you know military superiority. So the, the tradition of these you know, warrior elites goes as far back as you like. Medieval knights trace their own lineage all the way back to the Trojans and the Trojan War. I and imagine actually, historically that isn't particularly robust, but you'd like to think that, that they thought that. It's a kind of invented pedigree, but there's a truth to it in that there is a commonality of these these rich, powerful, aristocratic warriors who fight in the front line 
of the battle. There was I, even an Islamic version of knights, wasn't there? Everywhere you look, you'll find it. Achilles had his Myrmidons. The Romans had the Praetorian Guard. The, in Japan, there's the samurai. I mean, it, it's everywhere. What about ours? Do we know how they started? Well, I think the, the reason you can fudge it is that it is a little bit blurry. So I would say that probably what we think of as medieval knights would probably look to a model, something in the Roman Empire like the Equus, who were the, the horse-riding cavalry, who sat somewhere below the nobility. They weren't quite noble, but they were above the foot soldiers. So this idea of a mounted soldier, warrior, with his own weaponry, who was reasonably well off, not quite noble, existed in the Roman Empire. And I think when the Roman Empire crumbles, a lot of that falls apart. But a lot of rebuilding in the 11th century onwards harks back to Rome. And so they look to that example and you begin to see the emergence of this, what we would consider to be medieval knightly classes, I think, in the, the 11th, 12th, particularly the 12th and 13th century are probably the high points of the medieval knights, really. So that's interesting that you date it like that, because the 11th century is, or the middle of it, is when William the Conqueror and all his fighting knights come over. People had been fighting on horseback for centuries, but there were certain key elements that all had started to come into play. The riders are, wear, are heavily armed and armored. They fight with spears and swords from the back of a horse, and they have a system of horsemanship that is active. You're not just using the horse as a mode of transport and then getting off to fight. You are charging into battle on that horse. So that new system, these Norman uh, mounted soldiers who are quickly becoming what we recognize as knights you know, kind of literally collide with the older heroic culture of the warrior. And, and that introduces really the two, the two key elements of the knight's identity practically. I, I so love those moments in history where two different streams of human activity collide and create something which is new and fresh. And you think, where did that come from? Oh, yes from these different elements and that the epitome of that is the knights yeah and their and the castles i suppose too and think about the just the word knight in every other language apart from english the word for knight is the same as the word for horseman chevalier cavaliere caballero ritter in german it just means rider horseman but knight in english knecht means servant or retainer like samurai in Japan. A samurai is just a retainer. There's a similar thing going on there. Yeah. So you have a warrior who fights on a horse, but he also is a retainer, someone loyal to a great prince or nobleman. And those are the two key elements that come crashing together. There's another element, though, which I think everybody listening will know about. I'm not quite sure where it fits in, which is King Arthur's Knights of the Round Table. And that is an idealised version of knighthood. So in the real world, what knights do on a battlefield is hit each other very hard, try to kill some peasants if they possibly can. You're always aiming to capture another knight or a, a noble person. Your aim isn't normally to kill them during the, particularly this early medieval period. You want to capture them and ransom. That's how you get rich. You get lots and lots of money. So they're... The idealised version of what a knight should be in terms of the rules of chivalry, that he's protecting his lady in a tower or he's coming to somebody's rescue or he's protecting his, his peasants on his land, is difficult to reconcile with the real-life battlefield experience of clubbing people to death and desperately trying not to get clubbed to death yourself. Yeah, it, you saying that 
a flash comes through my mind of a drawing of a knight. It doesn't look nearly as much of a killing machine. It's more of a machine to break lines, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they, they are, you know, the medieval tank. It's an analogy that's been made before, but you, you plough a line of horsemen through a line of standing soldiers and they, they push through in a wedge, they split the lines, they break the lines and they allow everyone else to get in behind. So they're very much your, your front ranks, your forerunners in the battle, the vanguard, those making contact first. And they have all of these ideals of chivalry, which as I say are hard to reconcile with what they actually do in real life. So I think you find lots of expression of what they think knighthood should be in romantic fiction and Arthur and the Round Table is a prime example of that. These are the adventures that knights can undertake. This is how you should behave. This is why you should engage in fighting, even though in the real world they find it very hard to, to live up to that. And am I right in saying that Edward I was the king who really adopted this whole notion of knighthood and made it his own? Edward I was the first... I mean, he adopted uh, St George as patron saint of England. Really, Edward III, his grandson, is the one who really harks back to these Arthurian ideals. He's building, you know, there's plans for a round chapel at Windsor that's meant to reflect the idea of the round table. And he creates the Order of the Garter as the kind of ultimate pinnacle of English knighthood, which it still is today. So the Order of the Garter was like a sort of subsection of the knights and ones that were what particularly loyal to the king so you get these chivalric orders all around the world um you get the order of the golden fleece in burgundy and things like that the order of the garter is essentially it's set up as 24 members so there's the king his heir the prince of wales normally and then there are two teams that follow them of 11 other knights and the idea is that they're two tournament teams so they're actually set up as rivals in St George's Chapel, there's there's rows of stalls opposite each other because they're supposed to be they're supposed to represent two tournament teams fighting each other. But essentially, these are the people closest to, most loyal to the king. Not we wouldn't call them his bodyguard, really, but you know they're they're his knights who he wants around him on the battlefield if he's going to fight. If you've done some incredible service to the king, you've reflected well on him and his reign then you might hope to be rewarded with a, a member of the membership of the Order of the Garter. Toby, let's talk a little bit about uh, the kind of clothes. What would they have worn when they went into battle, do you think? The first and most important protective clothing that you can have, the baseline below which you just can't do the job, is some kind of padded textile defense. That's armor too. Armor doesn't have to be metal. Armor is any protective garment made out of anything really so a protective padded garment uh in the high medieval period they're usually described as an the the coat is called an acaton in essence you have a padded coat and all that does is it dampens some of the shock of a blow when someone hits you the other really important thing you have to have is a shield in this early period and big shields from the viking period all the way through into nearly the 15th century are an essential rigid defense that you carry on your left side, wielding your weapons primarily with your right hand. And if you start to build that picture up, you've got a padded coat that protects your body. You have a big shield. The next crucial piece of the puzzle is a rigid head defense of some kind, some kind of helmet. Beyond that, everything else is extra. Now, knights you know, they can afford it, so they have metal armor, they have different kinds of organic materials, horn, bone, hardened leather. There's a number of materials that come in. But from the 11th century, 
12th, 13th century, the next thing you wear, the really prestigious item worn over the padded coat is the hauberk, the shirt of mail. Thousands and thousands of interlocking steel or iron links riveted together, and that forms a metal fabric that doesn't work on its own. You can wear the padded textile without the mail, but you can't have the mail without the padded textile. Because? It will protect the padded textile from laceration and from points of weapons and things. But, you know, put the steel over your bare skin and try to imagine what that would feel like. It That's an eye-opener for me. I have always yeah. thought that if you were a knight, you had this metal stuff and that protected you full stop. Any armor system, whether you're an ancient Greek or on the modern battlefield, the whole concept of armor design is based around layering. If you layer different materials with different protective properties, that's always stronger and better than one thick layer of something. And I think the other thing about armor is things develop. There is an arms race that goes on. Uh, and I think one of the big myths about knight's armor, and Toby is probably better to talk about this as a man who, who kind of lives in, in armor half the time, but is the, the mobility and the maneuverability that knights have. We tend to think that once you put this stuff on, you weigh half a ton and you can barely move. But I've seen people in armor doing backflips and running assault courses and all of that kind of thing because you have to be mobile. The aim is to fight. But then up against that, you've got people who are developing weapons specifically designed to counter that. So I think our classic image, again, of knights fighting against each other with a sword each is probably unlikely to happen. Swords are what you kill peasants with who haven't got much armour. A sword will glance off another knight's quality armour. What you use against another knight is crushing weapons, your mace or something like that, and you aim for the joints of their armour to restrict their manoeuvrability. Something... I found fascinating what you said a bit earlier on, that knights, at least originally, weren't about killing people. Because for me, from the time I was six, I, and I'd got two knights, I can see it now, on the floor of the sitting room. They're bashing into each other. They're, their total motivation is to slaughter each other. Medieval knights would do that for fun, but they would very rarely do it in anger. What do you mean by that? Medieval military thinking is still based largely on Roman thinking. They rely on a text called De Re Militari by Vegetius, who wrote at the end of the, the Roman Empire and talked about what they'd done well and what they'd done wrong militarily. And that says that you should always avoid a pitched battle because they're too unpredictable. Even if you've got more men, even if you think you've got the best ground, there's no guarantee. So the best ways to do it is you know, besiege places, much more medieval warfare was about besieging castles than ever about taking to the battlefield. It was always a last resort. But what knights did do is engage in this blossoming tournament circuit around Europe, which oh, it's something like the Champions League in football today. Teams of knights would go out on tour, they would roam around wherever there was a tournament going on, and they would make money and a reputation doing this. And tournaments in this medieval period, they weren't the kind of classic jousting that we, we think of as well, but that comes much later in really the 16th century a tournament in these days was a mass brawl you would get teams of hundreds and hundreds of knights over an entire town or square miles of the countryside and your idea was just to let loose and bash each other the aim wasn't to kill anybody you aimed to capture a rival and you ransom them so you might claim their horse you might claim their armor they might pay you money to be released again so you could get quite rich you know william marshall again toured the tournament circuit with uh, Henry II's oldest son, Henry the Young King, and developed a, a huge reputation for just capturing endless knights, and he got incredibly wealthy by doing this. So you fought for fun as a way of practice, but very rarely did knights actually fight in anger against each other. And even when they did, they weren't normally aiming to kill another knight. You wanted to capture them and ransom them. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. You're listening to Tony Robinson's Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson, and my special guests this week, my courtly collaborators, Toby Capwell and Matt Lewis. Toby, we've talked a lot about the idea of knighthood, but it presumably had to be a, an official thing. You had to get a certificate or something before you became a knight. First thing is that you need to sit a vigil all night in the church and contemplate the knight's relationship with God and the defense of the church and that sort of devotional aspect. And then once you've done all that and the actual process is going to begin, the first thing you have to do is comb your hair and your beard. And then you take a bath. And the bath is about cleansing oneself uh, physically, but also cleansing of sin. It's uh, associated with baptism. It's almost like a second baptism. Then you go and you rest in a comfy bed. But the resting in the bed, that's supposed to remind you of the, the repose in paradise. That's your ultimate goal. That's what you will suffer for, and if you're successful, that's where you will end up. Uh, then you dress in a white robe. The, the robe symbolizes this new cleanliness of the body and spirit. But then you put on a red cloak, and this reminds you of the duty to shed blood in the defense of God's church and of your people. Then you put on brown hosen. They have to be brown because that reminds you of the earth in which you will lie ultimately in the end. And it's, it's a, a preparing for death in life. Then you put on a white belt. And the white belt is about sexual discipline. It's about controlling one's lustful impulses and desires. Then the golden spurs go on the feet. And those invoke this idea that you must be swift to follow God's commandments like a war horse charging into battle. Then you are girded with the sword, and the, the double edge of the sword is seen to represent justice and loyalty. Blimey, and, the, the battle must be yeah. over by now. No, no, <laughs> this, is, this is a big deal. On. <laughs> you only have to do this once. And, uh, and finally, this is a really important bit, there's the collé, which is anglicized to accolade. And, and this is where the senior knight 
who is conferring knighthood on on the 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 new knight strikes him across the face quite forcefully and this is this is the last blow that a knight will have to endure without returning in kind because now you are the wielder of divine power it's interesting isn't it because an accolade now is just like a kind of explosion of praise and yet it came from a very specific set of circumstances process and procedure how does that ceremony compare with the with one me. that you went to <laughs> who hit you around the face guess, yeah it's very very different i certainly didn't have have to have a bath well about six or seven weeks before i was made a knight i got a, a letter from the palace that said we would like to confer a knighthood on you but please don't tell anyone and I was actually filming in Australia with my wife at the time and my uh, my PA said we've got a letter from Buckingham Palace shall I open it and I said yes so I actually I I saw it on a zoom call uh-huh. <laughs> except I, I couldn't quite say it said you could receive this honor but then you know how it pixelates yeah. particularly over a long period I couldn't work out what the honor was and eventually we realized it, it was uh, a night and we both went bouncing round the room in Wollongong or, or wherever we were but we weren't allowed to tell anyone that was the worst part not mm. being able to share it with anyone and then on the night in question I got loads of mates in and we turned on the telly at 10 o'clock and there was a picture of me in the daytime and the first item on the news on one half of the screen there was me as Baldrick walking in ermine where when for some reason or other in that particular plot I'd been ennobled and on the other side there was me going up the steps in a very very sharp Italian suit Mm. I have to say just me my wife and my two kids and basically I just walked into that big ballroom in in Buckingham Palace knelt down oh no I forgot to kneel I was just staring at Prince William. It was the first one he'd done. He was staring back at me. And I'd I'd forgotten what I was supposed to do next. And then I saw him sort of batting his eyes slightly. And I realised he was subtly signalling for me to go down on my knees. Mm -hmm. And I did. And he doffed. That's an interesting word, isn't it? He Dubbed. Oh, dubbed. Dubbed. That's Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where does that come from? That's that's what he did. He dubbed me. That's basically... a stylized abstraction of the collet. Saves him punching I, you around the face. Yeah. <laughs> I assume he didn't slap you. He didn't, but I kind of almost slapped myself around the face because I got up and, and I turned the wrong way and walked back into the queue behind me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, So it was slightly less grand than you've described, but it was one of the enormous highlights of my life. But, you know, the dubbing, the dubbing of the laying of the sword on the shoulder, he did do that. He did. Okay. Yes. Well, that's more of a bounce. Yeah. I mean, but that's that tap with the sword on the shoulder. You know, there's something very vulnerable and kind of aggressive of having someone else's sword right next to your neck like that. So although it's not a slap across the face, the dubbing is still kind of a, a final invasion of your rights before you are elevated to the status where you are personally entitled to defend them to the utmost and you are now someone who is allowed to kill other people in the defense of your your king and your rights and your titles yeah right so uh, that's just thank you. presumably they so explained all that they didn't say but now i know and that's going to be very important for to me from now on Matt, uh, earlier on you you mentioned William Marshall or William the Marshall, who was described as the the bravest knight that there'd ever been. There's two others I want to ask you about. Firstly, Harry Hotspur. 
I think most people vaguely know that name because of Spurs. Who was he? And what, he wasn't a king, was he? No, no. So Henry Hotspur, and yeah, Tottenham Hotspur are named after him, and their their badge is his crest that he used. Uh, and I think that's to do with his descendants gave some land to Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. Um, but Henry Hotspur is the son of Henry Percy, the Earl of Northumberland, and in the late 14th, early 15th century. And they, they're a hugely powerful northern family and they get kind of wrapped up in helping Henry IV take the throne that we talked a little bit earlier about in 1399, but they quickly turn against him. They're not given some of the things that they, they felt they deserved. And although the Earl of Northumberland doesn't lead the revolt, his brother, the Earl of Worcester, does, and his oldest son and heir, Henry Hotspur. So he joins up with um, some Welsh forces and some rebel English forces, and they end up having a, a battle at Shrewsbury where Henry Hotspur is killed. And he's called Hotspur because of his willingness to ride into battle. He's seen as quite headstrong, uh, hot-blooded, you know, willing to charge into battle at the drop of a hat. Um, but he's killed at Shrewsbury, and, and Shrewsbury is the first battle in which the future Henry V takes part. So he's Prince of Wales at this point, Henry IV's oldest son, uh, and he's wounded by an arrow in the face. And that's partly, they believe, because he may have lifted his helmet up either to catch his breath or to get a, a better view of the battlefield and taking an arrow in the cheek when he did that. And this arrow kind of stays stuck in his cheek for five days and they have to invent a piece of machinery to pull it out. But yes, yeah, so, so Henry Hotspur was incredibly popular, very nearly deposed the early Lancastrian regime. And Why do you think we knight. know about him so well, or at least know his name so well? I mean, in a lot of these cases, it's to do with Shakespeare. Oh, right, of course. Shakespeare yeah. plants these people in our minds uh, and, and they sit there. But in his day, Henry Hotspur was an incredibly famous well-known knight and well thought of knight but he's also a bit player in a small rebellion that fails so we might not remember him so well if it wasn't for Shakespeare you know, immortalizing him in Henry the Fourth. I'm going to say this entirely in parenthesis but what you've just said makes me realize that Tottenham Hotspur are named after a knight. Chelsea play at Stamford Bridge which is one of the legendary battles, the one just before Hastings in 1066 where King Harold defeated the Vikings Arsenal are Woolwich Arsenal because the Arsenal was where the gunpowder was stored and uh, Fulham are in Craven Cottage and the cottage is where nice ladies with rosy cheeks make tea quite reflects how they play sometimes <laughs> anyway, what was the high point of nights? I remember Toby being in a room with you in a museum where the elaborate nature of of the metalwork that the knights were wearing was absurd beyond absurd. Things to protect your willy that were about the size of the Isle of Wight, you know? Mm. And great big crests on the head. I would have thought terribly impractical to fight in. The high point, you know, really seems to be in the, the 13th and early 14th centuries. But that's and, not and really where we, where we remember knights from, is it? It's a bit well, later than it that. It depends how you imagine them. Full plate armour is an iconic image that fully enclosed steel exoskeleton just seems so sculptural and iconic. It's often the image that we get in modern art or Victorian art of the ideal knight. Or a Terry Gilliam movie because right, it's just but, so overblown. But that's, that's, that's the Renaissance, really. 
I mean, full plate armor is a very late thing, and it's 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 designed for a different age. If we're defining not you know the 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 pinnacle of knighthood as as the point at which knights were at their most relevant and most important, and and the point at which the ideals of chivalry were as close to being uh, achieved as they were ever gonna be was really in the, the 13th and early 14th centuries when you have to imagine most of these people are wearing male armor supplemented by you know padded textile and some some finely tooled leather elements that's when it is it's the it's it's the age of Edward the first and William the Marshal and lots of other other knights who were famous in their own day, but nobody knows today. I mean, Arnold of Ardra was a really important knight in the 13th century, but who remembers him? <laughs> Your eyes were shining when you said those words. <laughs> <laughs> when we get to the 15, 1600s, and people are wearing all these extraordinary pieces of armour what is it they're actually doing with them showing off mostly I mean I think this is where tournaments turn more to jousting during the Tudor period and you're not running around a battlefield you're perhaps taking part in in jousts on horseback and that's about display rather than serious combat you know if you watch A Knight's Tale the film absolutely love A Knight's Tale but that kind of jousting just didn't happen in the period that that set it comes much later and I think it's this kind of mixing of our, our strands and understandings of timelines of knighthood, it all becomes a big mush. And we just imagine this guy encased in armour on the back of a horse, charging down the list with a lance, trying to knock someone else off a horse. Do me a favour then, before you go on, because I'm I'm, I've got slightly confused. Most of what you've both said is very clear, but the actual timeline, I'm really floundering. Yeah, so I, Give I mean, me a timeline from the moment that uh, William the Conqueror emerged as victor in, and, and the Normans took over England. And I would say in, in England in particular, you see with the Norman conquest, you see the importing of French ideas, ideals, policies and everything. And that includes castles and it includes knights. It's very much a French chivalric continental idea. All of that is imported with the Norman conquest. So then you start to see the rise and the refining of what it means to be a knight in England. And that's why we can probably point to the, the high watermarks being 12th, 13th into the the early 14th centuries as that all develops and builds and then I think if you get to the start of the the 14th century you can think then about why does knighthood start to almost decline a little bit and I think you can you can put knights up against the English longbow for example as a reason why knights start to become slightly less important less effective English longbows start to decimate battlefields they they rule European battlefields for a couple of hundred years and knights just don't find convincing, effective response to dealing with that. We see again, and I mean, Agincourt is the classic example of all of these hundreds of French knights, the pinnacle of chivalry, the, the height of French chivalry, when French chivalry is the height of chivalry anywhere in the world. They can't countenance the idea that these peasants with a bit of wood can harm them. They're knights. They're, they are invincible, indestructible machines. They've had, you know, they've gone through this process that Toby described. They've had this conferred upon them. They're just going to charge at these motley crew of peasants uh, with, with their little wooden bows. But the longbow is so effective against knights, it decimates the French lines. But the French just keep coming. And the reason for English success in the Hundred Years' War in the 14th century, really, is that the French can't adapt. Their chivalric ideals won't bend enough to allow them to cope with the emergence 
of the English longbow. But the English were. That's the point. I mean, those the bowmen would never have been able to stand against 10,000 French knights if they didn't have knights who could change their tactics. The English knights got off of their horses and could adapt and defend their their common soldiers and fight alongside them. That's that's militarily practical and effective, but it also had tremendous morale boosting that, you know, your lord gets off his horse and fights alongside you when you're just, you know, you're just some leather worker who picked up a bow and answered the the local muster. Yeah, uh, so I mean, you, the, you have the, Henry V fighting on foot at Agincourt alongside right. his men. They're changing again. Henry V is changing what it means to be a knight amongst your men. At the point at which you get to Agincourt in the early 15th century, Agincourt gets talked about a lot because it's like as famous a battle as there is anywhere in history, practically. But Agincourt also brings up a fundamental danger that we, as people interested in the past, have to always be mindful of. And that is that when you enter the, the, the story of, mid, of the Middle Ages, and of knights in particular, you are entering a minefield of myth and misconception. You know, when we sit here in the 21st century and we look back to the Middle Ages, we do not have an unobstructed view. You know, we're looking through all kinds of different distorting lenses. There's the distorting lens of 1950s Hollywood movies. There's the distorting lens of pre-Raphaelite art and the Gothic revival in the 19th century. There's the distorting lens of the Age of Enlightenment in the 18th century. And there's the distorting image of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Well, that's real, though. I mean, that's real medieval culture. So that's a different kind of fantasy world that we have to be aware of in a different way. But the first thing we have to do is strip away all of the modern myth and misconception right back to the 17th century. I blame Cervantes for a lot of our trouble in understanding the medieval knight. Explain that. Cervantes in Don Quixote created a new idea. The idea that you could take the image of the armored knight on his horse, that indelible silhouette, and use it for satirical purposes, to lampoon it, to use the armored warrior's image to invoke people who can't change with the times, who can't see the world the way it really is, who are obsolete and out of touch and being left behind by the march of history. But that's not reality that's Cervantes's literary purpose but you can see how that model would then appeal to like political cartoonists in the 19th century and suddenly this idea that this guy is encased in metal he's kind of robotic he's kind of alien so anytime you want to again invoke ridicule or obsolescence technologically or otherwise you know when ironclad warships were first introduced in the 19th century there were cartoonists lampooning them by showing all these soldiers in armor and you know the new ironclads yeah, how yeah. silly is this an ironclad ship what what are, you, what are you thinking so we have to be careful about applying all of that modern stuff onto real history given those caveats where do you place the beginning of the end for the knights in armour. It's an evolving process all the way through. So you talk about Agincourt, the English learn the tactics that they get at Agincourt from somewhere like Bannockburn, where they've come up against the, the Scots who got fight... Hammered. Got hammered. 
and the Scots have a way of fighting incredibly effectively against mounted knights and the English managed to take that and adapt that and deploy it in France against the French who don't know how to react to that which leads to a great deal of success then you get in England you see you know the Wars of the Roses ends up pitting identical tactics against each other so the English are back fighting the English all with the same tactics of firing thousands of arrows at each other uh, in, in an attritional kind of way and knights become less important again and I think by then we see you know France's response to the Hundred Years War is, is to invest heavily in the development of gunpowder weapons so Charles VII will, will take back most of France by building up a huge arsenal of cannon uh, and handguns and all of that kind of thing and really investing in that because this is no longer about knights being equally matched on the battlefield. The English have changed it so that they're using, most English armies probably had two-thirds archers to a third men-at-arms. And so the French do eventually react with a tactic of deploying gunpowder weapons, just fire a cannonball through a crowd of these people and knock them out of the way. And so with the development of gunpowder weapons, I think you see less and less of knights and particularly kings and rulers leading their armies into battle it's now too dangerous because it's no it's no longer about how good you are at fighting it's about whether this guy can pick you off from half a mile away with a, a fuse firing a big hunk of iron through the middle of you so some some leaders still do you know carry on the tradition of trying to do this but it becomes less and less frequent and so as kings move back from the battlefield and we get these kind of more like generals in their tents that we think of in the 19th century perhaps knights are just less relevant what they did for a living is no longer something that is happening in the world they just don't exist as a, a legitimate fighting force and, and to some extent the rise of jousting in the tournament is perhaps a little bit of a death row it's a little thrash against that but I think increasingly they just become less and less relevant on a battlefield so but we're beginning to see what uh what some people would call the the end of the great age of knighthoods, although I would profoundly disagree with that analysis. Another common, really a misconception, is the the idea of characterizing the armored knight on his horse on one hand as the kind of diametrically opposed enemy and opposite to gunpowder weaponry. Like these are two totally opposing forces, sure, and that, one overthrows the say, other. Isn't it? That's but what that's, people say. Knights came to an end because gunpowder was invented. The knights now fell off their horses. Right. No more knights. But that's, I mean, again, that's that's reductive. A, well, it's just it's very misleading because if you actually look at gunpowder, the history of gunpowder weapons technology, and also taking in mind what we've already established that all the way through the medieval period, knights were always the wielders of the very latest military technology. They had the best armor, they had the best horse armor, they had the best swords, the, the most advanced martial arts forms, um, all of that. That never stopped. If you look at, for example, the early history of handheld gunpowder weapons, like the pistol, uh, uh, something you can hold in one hand and you can discharge it easily uh, with with one hand. That's like essential firearms technology that we take for granted now. All of that was really developed for knights. You know, that from the late 14th century 
Knights knew that they needed gunpowder weapons. So did knights have guns? They absolutely did. They that were the is first. So cool! I'm going to write that movie <laughs> for handheld, you know, handheld weaponry, especially guns that can shoot, can repeat, and go bang more than once without reloading. All of those technological problems are first about equipping the armored nobility to shoot firearms from horseback. One of the most famous chivalric portraits ever painted by a Renaissance artist is Titian's portrait of the Emperor Charles V at the Battle of Mühlberg. And this is the most misinterpreted painting in the history of European art because he's on his horse with his spear in armor and art historians don't look any further than that and they say, oh, he's just, this is just an anachronistic view of knights. They call but him he, the last great knight, don't but they? But he's got pistols on his saddle. <laughs> He's, you know, his gauntlet has plates on all the fingers except the trigger finger because he needs a little bit more mobility on the trigger finger. Knights were the first ones to adapt that kind of really advanced personal gunpowder weaponry. So it isn't a one technology versus another. It's much more complicated than that. But where, where gunpowder really did matter ultimately in the 17th century was that it, it, you know, the use of massed small arms as well as artillery in the 17th century meant that thousands more knightly war horses were being killed in battles than was ever possible uh, before. And a knight's war horse is a really special creature. It needs years and years of training. The knight and the horse need to build up a long relationship together before they're going to be able to fight at the high level. If you're killing thousands of them in a day, you can't hope to replace that. Yeah. And the key thing that really took armored men off the battlefield in the 17th century, they say, we can't get the horses. We can't do this anymore. How did someone train up to be a knight? Where did they get their skills from? You would join the household of a knight. So uh, your father, if he's well-connected enough, will put you in the household of a nobleman or another knight and you would act as a squire and you kind of you learn your trade on the job you would be required to to do all of the physical training learn how to look after a horse learn how to look after armor learn how to look after weapons you take part in hunting hunting is a great way of training for for knights you get on a horse and you chase something through the woods and you try and skewer it with a spear that's very interesting because i had always thought that hunting was simply about hunting in its own right the blood sport of the tudors or whatever but you're saying it was actually a training field for those who were going to go on the battlefield. I, I dare say lots of people enjoyed it as well but it, it honed those key skills that you would have needed as a knight. So you, effectively, you serve an apprenticeship. You know, we, we call it an apprenticeship today until you're qualified and you, you meet all of those requirements and you would hope one day to go through that ceremony that Toby described. In ancient mythology, you almost always get a woman coming into the man's world, don't you, whether it's pirates or soldiers. Do we have any icons of women as knights? I suppose we have... Joan of Arc. There are a few. I mean, Joan of Arc is a, is a great example of a woman who puts on a man's armour and, and seeks to lead troops. We do have other examples. So, for example, in the in the anarchy, the, the civil war between Stephen and Matilda in England in the 12th century, yeah. there is an account of an earl's wife 
who puts on armour and rides onto the battlefield with her husband. The chronicler talks about her falling off her horse into some water and another knight has to come along and, and haul her out because she's drowning in this river. Uh, and everyone is slightly shocked and amazed that this woman has taken to the battlefield. And there are some ways in which it's seen as a bit of a slight on her husband that he's allowing a woman to behave in this way. And we have uh, people like Matilda de Briuse, who is a, a famous, again, a, a nobleman's wife on the Welsh marches. So that, that kind of rough borderland between England and Wales throughout the medieval period that was kind of like a Wild West frontier zone sometimes. Matilda de Briuse defends her lands you know, when her husband is away. And so we do get occasions when women are seen putting on armour and taken to the battlefield. There are, there are occasionally stories of women getting involved in the Crusades and things like that. But it's incredibly rare and it's seen as incredibly novel because it's in a misogynistic medieval world. It's a man's job to fight. Women simply don't do it. I mean, they do it as a last resort in the real world when they have to. But being a knight is a man's thing. Let me just flip back in time for a moment because the one thing that I think a lot of people know about knights that we've not talked about is the Crusades. I think we can see as well the tension throughout the medieval period between the church and the military classes because chroniclers often talk about knights being the worst people alive. If you read chronicles from this period, you could probably find 70 or 80 who, people who are described as the worst human who ever lived because they kill people apparently with abandon. So the church always looks down on what knights do. They're there to, to fight and to kill members of the peasantry, but the church preaches that you shouldn't kill people. So knights need a way to rationalise what they do. And I think some of the things like the Arthurian literature and the idea of these questing knights is almost a way to rationalise what they do to, to give it a sheen that makes it slightly more acceptable. But then you also do see the emergence of the military orders. So the Knights Templar, the Knights Hospitaller, the Teutonic Knights, they manage to mix the religious elements with the knightly elements together to kind of deal with that tension that exists to say we are effectively warrior priests we fight for god we have a, a higher purpose a higher reason for doing it and a lot of the crusading efforts throughout the you know the 11th 12th 13th century and beyond is about the church trying to harness this thing that they generally look down on and besmirch and say that it's awful suddenly it becomes useful yeah suddenly yeah, you can turn yeah. it to god's work and get them to go back and take jerusalem from from the muslims and that's you know everyone's guaranteed entry into heaven if you if you die on crusade or anything like that so the church most of the time looks down on these people and calls them horrendous horrible people who do the worst things in the world but every once in a while they're useful by the 18th or 19th century when knighthood you would have thought would have died out a kind of new ceremonial knighthood appeared didn't it and, and and now the bloke who plays the stupidest servant in the world got knighthood it is odd that it should have transformed in that way but i think i think it hasn't transformed all that much knighthood in the middle ages was about recognizing and rewarding people who gave great service to the nation to the kingdom to the king that would be predominantly fighting men in a in a massively militarized society in the Middle Ages, as that uh, the focus of society changes, the focus of what we think is valuable and useful necessarily changes as well. Poets get knighthoods. You get a knighthood for being Baldrick and, and contributions to entertainment and all of that kind of thing. A knighthood is recognising what we consider to be important and valuable in our society. It still speaks to 
us as a as a nation what do we think is important what do we think is worth celebrating what what do we want to project as the focuses and the interests of our nation and i think it's probably a good thing that it's changed from killing people on a battlefield to making people laugh on tv i'm all for that so i'm not sure that knighthood really has changed what's changed is what our understanding of what is important and valuable to our country is and the belief system and just the physical mechanics of it i mean we don't we don't fight with those weapons those long-term you know, honed martial arts skills are not what we use on the battlefield anymore but there's still a lot that's inspirational there's a lot that's deeply meaningful about knighthood it connects us with our past our ancient past and our mythologies in an age where we're often very disconnected from anything more than half an hour ago, really, you know, there's a lot still to take from it. And medieval culture is all still around us, whether we realize it or not. You will start to see the Middle Ages everywhere, whether it's in cin- on cinema screens or in literature or on the battlefield in the Ukraine. Everywhere you look, the past is closer than you might think. Toby, can you think of a moment in history when a knight or knights had a cunning plan? In the early 15th century, there was a knight named Peronino, and he was a knight in the service of the King of Castile. And then he has to change tack completely, quite literally. The King of Castile has a problem with pirates in the Mediterranean. So he sends Peronino with some galleys and he sends him to go fight pirates. And Peronino dutifully goes down and does that, but this is where his cunning plan comes in when he realizes it's actually better to be a pirate himself and go off on his own adventures and declare his own kind of swashbuckling independence. And he changes sides and starts doing exactly as he pleases all of the time and attacking who he likes and plundering what he likes. Although Peronino was kind of a psychopath in some ways, and, it, and his story makes you wonder whether chivalry was often just a kind of cover for psychopathic behavior. I just love his free-spirited, adventurous kind of instinct. I love the idea of you describing him as a psychopath in some ways. (laughs) (laughs) Matt, Toby, thanks ever so much. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you want to join in the conversation, you can find me on Twitter at Tony underscore Robinson. And you can follow all our podcast news on Twitter and Instagram at CunningCastPod. And please, please, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. I'm Tony Robinson. This is my cunning cast produced by Melissa Fitzgerald and it's a Zinc Media production.